Hey, I'm Noam Weissman, and you're listening to Unpacking Israeli History, the podcast that takes a deep dive into some of the most intense, historically fascinating, and confusing events in Israeli history. All that in just about 20 minutes. Yalla, let's do this. We, the people of Israel, are prepared and anxious to meet the representatives of our neighbors without any preconditions. There are people in Israel and elsewhere say it's impossible to make peace between the Arabs and Israel or the Jewish people. I think they are wrong. Back in 2017, the New York Times published an article about Amadeo Garcia Garcia, the last living speaker of the Tashori language. Once spoken for centuries by thousands of members of an Amazonian tribe, Amadeo was the sole survivor and the last person on earth to know the language. His tribe, which had lived uncontacted for centuries along the Amazonian River in Peru, slowly died out due to the weapons and diseases brought to them from intruders. When Amadeo's brother passed away, his last remaining relative, a missionary asked Amadeo how he felt. Amadeo responded in the broken Spanish that he had, the only way he had to communicate with the outside world. He said, it's now over for us. Why? Amadeo no longer has someone to speak to, And when you have no one else to speak to, you will lose your language. That's why it was over for Amadeo. See, losing a language is like losing an identity, a culture, a history. I don't mean to sound overdramatic here, but losing a language is really losing oneself. Looking back at the history of the Jewish people, the Jews faced a very similar problem. And the reality today is that over the last 150 years, a modern miracle took place. For almost 2,000 years, Hebrew, the language of the Torah, the Bible, and so much Jewish liturgy, you know, the prayers, was mostly reserved for the ritual. And now, Jews all over the world speak Hebrew, a language that was essentially dead as a spoken language. Something like this has never happened in the history of language, ever. The fact that the majority of Jews around the world speak Hebrew today is not something to take for granted. There are approximately 14.7 million Jews in the world, and 6.7 million of them live in Israel, where Hebrew is a national language. And many hundreds of thousands outside of Israel speak the language as well, learning it in Jewish day schools and in summer camps or at home. Sure, the Bible, prayers, and religious texts were written in read in Hebrew, but literally nobody spoke it in daily life for like almost 2,000 years. So how did an almost extinct biblical language reemerge as a spoken language in the span of only a few decades? Was it Zionism that deserves the credit? A certain figure named Eliezer ben Yehuda? And was it always obvious that Hebrew would be the national language of the Jewish state? Let's jump back in time to learn about the history of the Hebrew language. Details about the spoken language of Hebrew in ancient times are not perfect. Here's what we know. In the Bible, the Jews, otherwise known as Hebrews, spoke an ancient biblical version of Hebrew. 
Biblical Hebrew was the spoken language of the Jews for over a thousand years. But when the Romans destroyed the second Jewish temple in 70 CE, Hebrew began to die out. It was essentially completely dead 65 years later in 135 after the failure of the Bar Kokhba revolt when Roman Emperor Hadrian expelled, enslaved, or killed most of Israel's remaining Jews, the final native Hebrew speakers. The remaining Jews left in the land of Israel continued using Hebrew in the study of the Torah, but they really only used it as a written language. Even though Hebrew was zealously preserved, by the turn of the second century, Aramaic had really become the common language of the Middle East. At the turn of the third century, Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, aka Judah the Prince, nobody calls him that, the leader of the small remaining Israeli Jewish community in Israel, chose Hebrew, not Aramaic, in his editing of the Mishnah, you know, the compilation of Jewish law, which became the basis for the Talmud. Though this might be a hot take, his choice to codify Hebrew as the language of the Mishnah actually kept written Hebrew alive. Louis Glennert, whose book was super helpful in research for this pod, called it an act of spiritual resistance to use Hebrew as the language of Mishnah and Midrash. Even still, it didn't catch on as the main language in Torah study. The Talmud, the encyclopedic work forming the basis of essentially all Jewish law, was composed in the 6th century in Aramaic. Now, the nerds among us will point out that actually around, I don't know, 50% of the Talmud is in Hebrew. But don't worry, nerds, I'm here to out-nerd you. Actually, at least 1,000 Greek words appear in the Midrash and the Talmud. Kategor, that means prosecutor. That's in Greek. Pinkas, that means writing pad. Yeah, that's Greek too. How about the word for rabbinic high council? That would be Sanhedrin. And you guessed right, that's Greek. Somehow, though, Hebrew stayed alive, even though by any reasonable linguistic yardstick, prospects of native Hebrew's survival was now minimal. Think about it. No land scattered across the globe. Like, come on, that's so unlikely. Hebrew seems to be a language that was always competing for attention among the Jews. From 500 BCE to 500 CE, Hebrew was in competition with Greek, Latin, and Aramaic. Consider this. Ever been to a Jewish wedding and heard someone read a marriage contract and you have no idea what's being said? Don't worry, you're not alone. That's not in Hebrew. That's actually in Aramaic. Or ever attend a divorce proceeding? Probably much less likely. But those docs are also in Aramaic. Documents which are at the core of the Jewish relational experience are written in Aramaic, not Hebrew. One point for Aramaic, zero for Hebrew. Fast forward a bit. And Hebrew got some help from Judaism's top rabbis. Medieval scholars across the world wrote their commentaries on the Bible and Talmud in Hebrew, including Rashi, who was writing in Christian France, and Rabbi Avraham Ibn Ezra in Muslim Spain. Maimonides, otherwise known as Rambam, the 12th century leader of the Jewish community in Egypt, wrote his Mishnah Torah, or the Code of Law, in Hebrew. This all helped, like it really did, because there's nothing inevitable about the Hebrew language persisting. But speaking Hebrew? Yeah, still not a thing. 
So who saved Hebrew? Hasidim, Maskilim, who are Enlightenment Jews, and Zionists. Quite the motley crew, but I'll explain. In the 18th century, during the age of the Enlightenment, the study of language rose in popularity. And Hebrew was no exception. Around the turn of the 19th century, secular Jewish intellectuals, part of the Jewish Enlightenment movement known as Haskalah, founded multiple Hebrew language periodicals and newspapers with the goal of spreading the language and showcasing its beauty. Hamagid and Hamelitz were a few of these newspapers. Their circulation didn't compare with the Yiddish numbers, but they were still reaching tens of thousands of Jews throughout Europe. In Eastern Europe, the founder of the movement known as Hasidut, or Hasidism, the Baal Shem Tov gave many public talks, but did not write much down. Eventually, his talks were translated from his spoken Yiddish into written Hebrew. A new Hasidic literature arose that was more populist than ever, read by many, and it was much more like a spoken language. The Baal Shem Tov's grandson, known as Rabbi Nachman from Breslov, published his tales in a bilingual Hebrew-Yiddish edition. As many of the non-elite Jews were reading this, Hebrew was finding a new home. So that's the second thing. And then come the Zionists. In the late 19th century, as the Zionist movement began to take shape, cultural Zionists, i.e. those who cared more about the language and culture of the Jewish people than anything political, saw Hebrew as a way to return to their ancient Jewish roots. Although it may seem obvious today that Hebrew would be the language of Zionism, it wasn't obvious back then. Think about it. If you're Jewish growing up in the 1800s, what languages did your grandparents or great-grandparents speak growing up? Chances are, it wasn't Hebrew. If you're Ashkenazi, you know, meaning Jewish and mostly from Europe, but not Spain, chances are your recent ancestors spoke Yiddish. If you come from a Sephardi or Mizrahi background, you know, from the Middle East or North Africa, perhaps you spoke Ladino or Judeo-Arabic. There were options that weren't dead language already, like Hebrew. So why would the Zionists pick one that hadn't been spoken for thousands of years? And how did that happen? Yiddish, in some ways like Aramaic earlier, was really vying for power in the Jewish world. Some Yiddishists, you know, people who love Yiddish and speak Yiddish in the late 19th and 20th centuries, argued that Yiddish, not Hebrew, was the real unifying national language of modern Jewry and suggested that the future Jewish homeland should adopt Yiddish as the national language. The Yiddishists argued that Hebrew was the language of the highly educated Jewish elite, whereas Yiddish belonged to the Jewish masses. The founder of political Zionism, Theodor Herzl himself, had a whole other plan in mind. And it sounds wild. He didn't even know Hebrew, and he believed that German was the natural choice for Zionism and the future Jewish state. He famously said, who knows enough Hebrew to even buy a train ticket? Another major obstacle was the perspective of most Ashkenazi Haredi Jews, many of them Hasidic, who firmly believed that Hebrew, you know, Lashon HaKodesh, the holy tongue, should be used only for Torah study and prayer and not for mundane purposes. This is really only partially true. And so I've been looking into this a bunch and it's much more likely that their opposition to the Hebrew language 
was due to its association with the Enlightenment and Zionism. Interestingly, today, most Haredim in Israel speak Hebrew, even though Haredi Hasidim mostly speak Yiddish. Okay, I know this is getting confusing, and that's totally a pod for another time. And then there was Eliezer ben Yehuda, who is remembered today as the one who revived the Hebrew language. Little known trivia fact, Ben Yehuda was actually born Eliezer Yitzchak Perlman, and he had some pretty wild ideas. Eliezer's obsession with Hebrew started as a child in Europe, when his yeshiva teacher secretly introduced him to specific secular Hebrew literature, such as the works of Achad Ha'am, the leader of cultural Zionism I mentioned earlier. Achada Am's real name, by the way, was Usher Ginsburg. I always feel compelled to mention that when I talk about him. Anyway, Eliezer discovered that in rare cases, when two Jewish communities that spoke different languages, say, I don't know, Yiddish and Arabic, needed to correspond with each other, they would sometimes use a form of medieval Hebrew as a common language. This strengthened his opinion that Hebrew was the way to unite global Jewry. So in 1881, he packed his bags and made the trek to the land of Israel. Here in his words, Will our language and literature last much longer if we do not revive it, if we do not make it a spoken language? And how could that work other than by making Hebrew the instructional medium of our schools, not in Europe, nor in any of the lands of our exile, where we are a significant minority and no amount of teaching effort is going to succeed? but in our land, the land of Israel. His ideas were pretty simple. If modern-minded Jews resettled the Holy Land and spoke Hebrew, then Hebrew literature would be saved. Ipso facto, I think that's how you use that phrase, Jews would be saved. Adopting the biblical-sounding name Eliezer ben Yehuda, he and his first wife, Devorah, established the world's first strictly Hebrew-speaking household in almost 2,000 years, and soon produced the world's first native Hebrew speaker in almost 2,000 years, their son, Ben Sion. How? Ben Yehuda was hardcore about implementing the Hebrew language, like super hardcore. He forbade anyone, including his wife, from speaking to their son, Ben Sion, in any language other than Hebrew. You can imagine this was difficult, most of all for Devorah, who didn't really know Hebrew, which meant She did not really speak in the house, essentially taking a vow of silence. The experiment got off to a rough start. By the age of four, Ben Sion still wasn't speaking at all, and Ben Yehuda was so obsessed with proving that Hebrew could exist as a modern daily language, he actually prevented Ben Sion from playing with other kids to avoid any corruption of his Hebrew. Ben Yehuda was not messing around. His friends and colleagues were telling him to give it up. This is too much. There's a story, which may be true and may be apocryphal, that Eliezer once caught Devorah singing a Russian lullaby to Ben Sion, and he got so angry. But it was the little boy Ben Sion, who, by the way, later changed his name to Itamar Ben Avi, nice little trivia fact, who saved the day by saying, Abba, Abba, Daddy, Daddy. Ben Yehuda wrote in his diary that there was now no room for doubt that Hebrew could become the spoken language of a community. Got it. So one kid started speaking Hebrew. 
But how did that turn into a movement? How did Hebrew win the day? We'll get into all of this, but think of it like this. You got the romantic nature of Hebrew, the power of the education system, and, well, practicality. In 1890, Ben Yehuda founded the Vad Halashon, or the Language Council, which still exists to this day as the Academy of the Hebrew Language. The council published bulletins and dictionaries, coming up with neologisms, coining thousands of words that you don't find in the Torah, like buba, which means dull, or glida, which means ice cream, or ofnaim, which means bicycle. Not every word he invented caught on. In fact, actually only, I think, 150 did. But Ben Yehuda took it upon himself to keep the language growing. Even today, the Academy of the Hebrew Language is the go-to for all things Hebrew. They are the ones to publish the newest Hebrew words. They answer questions about Hebrew grammar and spelling and are seen as the foremost experts on the continued development and evolution of the Hebrew language. It's actually pretty cool. Soon after Herzl's death in 1904, the Zionist Congress declared Hebrew the official language of Zionism. The language spread through schools and homes in Israel and developed through trial and error with each school becoming a word-minting factory. So while the committee was a big deal, the daily lived experience in schools was probably more critical. Eliezer ben Yehuda had achieved his goal. Shortly before Ben Yehuda died in 1922, Britain officially recognized Hebrew as a language of Palestine's Jewish inhabitants. And in 1948, Israel became an official Hebrew-speaking state. But just like the story didn't begin with Ben Yehuda, it doesn't end with him either. He became the face of the movement, but there was still work to be done. Like I mentioned, Ben Yehuda invented about 150 words that stuck, but his son Ben Sion and others came up with thousands more. Between 1918 and 1948, thousands of Hebrew words emerged like Machberet, notebook, and Meshek, economy. In fact, the first major Hebrew dictionary wasn't officially completed until 1959, 11 years after Israel was founded as the Jewish state. By the way, dictionary, in Hebrew, Milon, also a neologism developed by Eliezer. And just think about the fields of medicine, science, and law. How did a whole dictionary get created? Men like Dr. Aharon Meyer Mazier. That's the answer. I taught his great-grandson and great-granddaughter when I used to be a principal. Whatever. Not bragging. You're bragging. So, anyway. Mazier took on the task, advising Ben Yehuda during his life and continuing the work after his death. Biblical Hebrew has about 7,000 words, whereas modern Hebrew has upwards of 33,000. Just 12 years before the Jewish state was reestablished in 1948, in 1936, 100,000 of the 300,000 Jews in Israel, then called Palestine, could not speak Hebrew. But by 1948, 93% of children under 15 were using Hebrew as their sole language. Overall, of the 650,000 or so Jews in the new state, half were already native speakers, and an additional 25,000 spoke it as their main language. With refugees pouring in from all over the world at the time, the need for a common language was front and center. Hebrew was still battling Yiddish as a popular language, but many in Israel's booming immigrant population considered Yiddish a language of exile and a reminder of things they'd rather forget. Not to mention 
all the Jews from North Africa and the Middle East who didn't speak Yiddish and felt no connection to Yiddish at all. With the new state founded, Israeli leaders wanted to cement an Israeli identity, and they knew Hebrew was a key ingredient needed to bond all of these different types of Jews together. And although the Yiddish language and its culture made up an illustrious era in Jewish history, it was ultimately Hebrew that had been studied, used, prayed in, and cherished by all Jews in all of Jewish history in all places that Jews reside. It only made sense that Hebrew would be the choice as the national language of the Jewish state. It was the romantic language of the Jewish people. Prime Minister David Ben-Gurion was really intense about this. He went so far as suppressing Yiddish from being used in any public role, using a well-organized political system to force Hebrew usage through its comprehensive services to the immigrants. Schools were in Hebrew, youth movements were in Hebrew, compulsory military service was in Hebrew. In June 1948, it was declared, the citizens of a Hebrew state cannot continue to appear in personal and public life with foreign names, which account for 90% of the surnames among us. A radical change is required. Ben-Gurion issued an order that all senior diplomats and army officers had to Hebraize their names just as he had done. For example, Shimon Persky became Shimon Peres. Levi Skolnick became Levi Eshkel. Golda Meyerson, well, she became Golda Meir. Yeah, she kept her Yiddish name Golda because she was a baller like that. But today, one can't exactly say Hebrew is the exclusive thing you'll hear among Israeli Jews. For example, when Ariel Sharon was prime minister of Israel, he railed against the use of non-Hebrew words in everyday Hebrew. For example, most Israelis, when hanging up the phone, will end the call with Nu Yalabai. Nu is in Yiddish, Yala in Arabic, and Bai, English. Kind of funny. Sharon pleaded for Israelis to use the more beautiful word, Shalom. Let's get back to Eliezer Ben Yehuda. It would seem like he was responsible in many ways for reviving and modernizing Hebrew. That is actually a common misconception. It took an entire people over many centuries to ensure that this tremendous feat could be accomplished. So while some credit Ben Yehuda was single-handedly bringing Hebrew back to life, it's really much more complicated than that. As Zionist leader Menachem Masishkin later said of Ben Yehuda, the people needed a hero, so we gave them one. In fact, it was Eliezer Ben Yehuda's second wife, Chemda, Devorah's sister after his first wife passed, who was the brains behind the dictionary project. And Lewis Glenner says she deserves equal credit for the dictionary. Still, it was Ben Yehuda who steered the language past the obstacles facing it in the 19th and early 20th century. Remember, not everyone wanted it that way. If Herzl had it his way, initially, Israelis would be speaking German today. And the word for butterfly is way nicer in Hebrew. What, like, think about it. What would you rather, an onomatopoeia like parpar in Hebrew or schmetterlink? Yep, you just listened to a 25-minute podcast about how and why Hebrew was revived. I know. It seems a little crazy that there was so much argument and back and forth about which language to choose, but it's actually pretty important, and I'm going to get a little philosophical here. We know that language informs culture and the way we think and the way we act. I'm super interested in language and linguistics and learned recently about the Aymara language, a language native to countries in South America, including Chile and Peru. In Aymara, 
the word for future translates to behind time, and the word for past is front time. So when they gesture to remember things about the past, they gesture ahead of them. And when they talk about the future, they point behind them. Super interesting, right? In the Aymara language, past means eye or sight, because you know the past, you've seen it, so it's in front of you. The future is unknown. You haven't seen it, so it's behind. Super cool example, but it, it shows us really what it means for a language to completely impact culture and the way we think and the way we act. And that's why it truly mattered to have one national language and for that language to be Hebrew. Israeli culture wouldn't exist in the unified way it does if different communities spoke Ladino, Yiddish, and German. And although my Hebrew certainly isn't perfect, and I certainly insert English words all the time, I feel so honored to know and learn and love a language that unites Jews across the world. So yeah, that's how Hebrew miraculously came back to life after being a dead language for 2,000 years. Here are your five fast facts to sum it all up. Number one, Theodor Herzl, the founder of political Zionism, believed German should be the official language of the Jewish state, while Yiddishists advocated for Yiddish. Number two, Hebrew is the only dead spoken language to be revived in the history of languages, as far as I know. Three, Eliezer ben Yehuda and his wives, first Devorah and then Chemda, were the first parents to raise their children entirely in Hebrew in almost 2,000 years. Number four, David Ben-Gurion enacted various laws to ensure Hebrew was part of the new Israeli national identity. Number five, Eliezer ben Yehuda's Hebrew dictionary was not completed until 1959, 37 years after his death. Chemda, his second wife, was equally instrumental in the realization of the dictionary. Those are the facts, but here's one enduring lesson as I see it. One of my favorite rabbis of all time is the eccentric Menachem Mendel of Kutsk, known as the Kutsker. The Kutsker said, more miraculous than reviving the dead is reviving the living. Meditate on that for a moment. Hebrew was never dead. It was always alive. But its revival remains the most miraculous thing about Zionism and the modern story of the Jewish people for me. And with that, shalom. With that, thanks for listening to another episode of Unpacking Israeli History. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a rating if you enjoyed listening. If you have any questions, comments, or just want to talk Israeli history, shoot me an email at noam at unpacked.media. I'd love to hear from you. Stay tuned next week for our next episode where we'll be discussing Der Yassin, a super important and controversial point in Israeli history. See you there. This podcast comes from Unpacked, a division of Open Door Media. I'm your host, Noam Weissman. Our producer is Rachel Kastner. Research and writing by Avi Posen. Additional research and writing by Akiva Potok, Yitz Brilliant, Alicia Stein, Benjamin Elterman, Oren Pelig, and Ellie Lichstein. Edited by Robert Perra. Unpacking Israeli History is generously sponsored by Larry and Andrea Gill. This episode was generously sponsored by Maital and David Chamber.